Amen. You can grab a seat. If you have elementary age kids, uh, we would love for them to be a part of what we have going on our Vine Kids time. Miss Cherry Rushing, who we have now hired officially as our Vine Kids director. Uh, Brandon introduced you to her last week. We'll be telling, telling you a little bit more about her in the weeks to come, but we're excited. And she's right back here, and she would love to take your children back and have them be a part of what we have planned for our children this morning. So I mentioned earlier, and, and by now you kind of get it, that uh, this Sunday is the first Sunday of Advent. And uh, Advent is the season that leads us up to Christmas. It actually comes from a Latin word, uh, the word Adventus, which means coming or arrival. We kind of trace its roots all the way back to about the fourth century, when Advent was actually tied to the preparation of new believers that were headed towards baptism. And they would celebrate baptism at the Feast of Epiphany, which is in January. And that feast celebrated the Incarnation, which I'll talk about in just a minute. But, but Advent was actually a leading up of the new believers as they prepared to be baptized. It was what it was tied with originally. Later on, sort of, we uh, kind of tied it to Christmas and the birth of Christ and, and sort of the movement of the Incarnation. Um, and we think about Advent uh, oftentimes in terms of one singular event in history, right? The, the birth of Jesus Christ, the baby lying in a manger and the Magi and the North Star and Mary and shepherds and donkeys and feeding troughs and all those kind of things. And that is certainly true. In this Advent, we look towards the coming of the Messiah, right? We look backwards towards the coming of the Messiah. But there actually are two Advents that we celebrate as followers of Christ. We celebrate the first Advent, which is the coming of Christ, the Messiah, into the world. But we look beyond that to the second Advent or the promise of his return. And so what this season does for us is it doesn't just say, hey, look what happened 2,000 years ago, but it prepares us also for what Jesus said, that he would return. And so we look back and we celebrate the inbreaking of God into humanity, and we look forward celebrating and believing that he will come again and right all things. So we celebrate and look towards both of those advents, both the one that came and the one that is to come. And we celebrate this idea of the first advent with the word, the word incarnation, which is a really fancy theological term, which really means the inbreaking of God into humanity. So incarnation is the presence of God in the person of Jesus Christ, that he embodied humanity himself. And we celebrate the first advent in terms of the incarnation, that God himself took on human flesh and became part of humanity. But this was no sort of nice little inbreaking. It was a radical collision of heaven and earth. And we're often ta- told culturally over Christmas that this sort of thing that happened, this Jesus being born and lying in a manger and shepherds singing, that we all gather around and sing like Christmas songs, and it's all sweet and peaceful. But the incarnation is actually a radical collision of heaven and earth. John calls it the light piercing the darkness. It was holy, majestic, mighty God breaking into sinful humanity through the piercing cries of an infant. The incarnation is a radical collision of heaven and earth. Jesus' very life and existence was a radical collision of heaven and earth. It was perfect God in the presence of deeply sinful humanity. And so the incarnation, the one that we celebrate with the first advent, is a radical collision of heaven and earth. It's light piercing the darkness. It's holiness and sinfulness coming face to face. And it's the remembering that things don't end there, but that we have been promised 
the return of Christ, that he will wipe away every tear, that he will restore every hurt, that we will stand before him as we'll talk about today in this moment of judgment, right, with an advocate as Jesus, as our Savior. And that's what we celebrate in Advent. And sadly, we've exchanged a lot of that for malls and gift cards and sweaters for dogs and things that we do over Christmas, right? But the But Advent is this incredible reminder of exactly what God did for us, that he broke into humanity to redeem and save us and deliver us from judgment and wrath. And what we're going to do over the next three weeks is we're going to explore the season of Advent through three proclamations that I think we can make as Christians, three incredibly real and powerful proclamations that we can make as followers of Christ. And we're going to explore the season through those things. And the first one, the one we're going to explore today, is that Jesus is the reason for the hope that we have. So Jesus is the reason for our hope. Next week, we're going to talk about Jesus as the reason for our love. And the following week, we're going to talk about Jesus as the reason for our joy. But this morning, we are focused on the word hope. And we're going to be in the book of Romans chapter 5. So if you've got it, I want you to go ahead and get there. And really, it's an incredibly personal statement. As I kind of crafted it out in my head this week, I was thinking about so- talking about Jesus, the celebration, uh, or the remem- or kind of the reminder of our hope. But as it formulated out of my prayer time, it really became, Jesus, you are the reason for my hope. And as I started thinking about it, started praying that, started kind of looking at what this text in Romans says, it became a very personal statement to me. It was no longer, Jesus, you are just the reason for our hope or the hope that we have, but it became, Jesus, you are the reason for my hope. And we're going to explore that statement in length today at um, Romans chapter 5. We'll be in verse 6 and 7. Now, just a quick little word about the book of Romans. Paul wrote the book of Romans to the church that was gathering and beginning to gather in Rome. It was a church that Paul had not visited at the time he wrote the letter. He actually wrote the letter from his third missionary journey in the city of Corinth. He was writing to the believers that were gathered in Rome. Paul had already believed that God was going to be taking him to Rome. Now, those of you that have been with us for a while know that we spent two years in the book of Acts, every single verse for two years. We just wrapped that up a few weeks ago. And you'll remember that on Paul's third missionary journey, he was collecting money to take back to a poverty-stricken church in Jerusalem. The church was in deep poverty. He was collecting money from the Macedonian churches. and He was collecting money from the churches he was visiting, and he was returning with those offerings to Jerusalem. And he believed that God was going to be delivering him after that to Rome. He believed God was taking him to Rome. And we know that God did that, but it's not the way that Paul planned it, right? Paul thought he would sail for Rome, and what ends up happening is Paul meets hostility in Jerusalem. He's captured, spends three years in jail, and eventually shipwrecks himself all the way up there to Rome. You remember how that all unfolds. Well, at that time, Paul still believed that God was going to be taking him to Rome. He just wasn't sure how. He actually thought he was going to be traveling there, and so he wrote this letter to them saying, I am coming to you. And I'm coming for two reasons. One, I'm coming right? Because I want to give you and preach to you the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Romans is this beautifully complex yet simple theology of salvation. And it's the message that he is hoping to deliver to them in person. And it's an incredible book. It's a complete picture of salvation, everything from sin and death to grace and salvation, everything in between. But it's the message that he's hoping to bring to them personally, And then he tells him towards the end of the book, he says, once I come to you and I deliver this message, then hopefully you will help 
send me on to Spain. Because Paul was hoping to take the gospel all the way up to Spain. And what we know happens is Paul goes to Jerusalem, he's arrested, he goes on all those trials and all that kind of stuff, and he ends up in Rome waiting, right, under house arrest to stand trial before Nero, the most brutal emperor that Rome would ever know. Um, and he waits there, and then he gets released and comes back and all those kind of things we talked about. But the book of Romans was written to a church he hadn't met, not to address a theological heresy, but to lay out the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you haven't ever read it or have never gone through it, it is a wonderful book. But we're going to look at just a few sections as we talk about that proclamation this morning. And I'm going to make it very personal. Jesus, you are the reason for my hope. Let's pray together before we open the word to you. Lord, we come before you this morning grateful, eternally grateful for how you love us. God, for what you have done for us through the person of Jesus Christ. That you have given hope to our lives that are riddled at times in deep hopelessness. That God, you are a God that broke into humanity to save us, to redeem us. That God, through that moment in history, the embodiment of God in the person of Jesus Christ, you walked this earth, you died for our sin, and you were raised, Father, to give us victory over death, life in Christ. Lord, the hope that we have is rooted in the person of Jesus Christ and nowhere else. This world will not fill us with hope. Our own abilities won't give us hope strengths, none of those things can do anything for us. You are the only reason for the hope that we have. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask the Lord to teach you something this morning. Whatever that needs to be or whatever you need to say to him, just just ask the Lord to teach your heart. Lord, we turn our morning over to you. We know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. We do not take it lightly. And so, Lord, we ask you to teach our hearts. Take a moment right where you sit and just pray for someone else around you. We do this every week. I just encourage you to be people that are praying for each other. Even if you don't know that person's name, even if you're here for the very first time, just pray that God would move in someone else this morning. Lord, we ask that you would move in us today. Make your word come alive. Speak to us. We know that it won't return empty, but it accomplishes what you desire and achieves the purposes for which you send it, as you tell us in Isaiah. So God, speak to our hearts. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Romans chapter 5 um, comes in the sort of middle of this message of the gospel. It is a five and six and seven and eight really are this complete outpouring of the gospel laid out for the Romans. And Paul is instructing them essentially on exactly what Jesus has done. And this is what he says in verse six, chapter five, verse six, and we'll just go down through 10 this morning. You see, at just the right time, when you were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we now have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath 
through him. For if we when if for if we went, oh, excuse me, for if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Now, Romans is a theologically compact document. It's written with deep and real theological language to a very kind of cerebral group of people that were trying to, and hopefully were going to be grasping the depths of exactly what Christ did. Not from an emotional standpoint, but from an emotional and a spiritual kind of tied together theological picture. And Paul does some very important and very incredible things in this book by laying out the truth theologically of what took place, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And the proclamation that we make first as we think about Advent is, Jesus, you are the reason for my hope. Now that statement alone has a few assumptions or a few implications that it makes. And the one that's very glaring is this. If Jesus is the reason for my hope, then the assumption is that without Jesus, I have no hope. So the statement itself, Jesus, you are the reason for my hope, assumes that without Jesus, I have no hope. Now, Paul's letter to the Romans spends a a significant amount of of time telling the Romans, the believers there, why they are hopeless without Christ. And Paul lays it out. First and foremost, he says this, that we are God's enemies. So if you look down at verse 9, he says, Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For when we were God's enemies. Colossians puts it this way, For once we were alienated from God, but we're enemies. Reminds because of our evil behavior. See, you and I are enemies of God. The Bible's very clear about it. It doesn't sugarcoat it. It doesn't sound very nice, but it's very, very true. That in all of our sinfulness and all of our brokenness and all of the things that are utterly kind of stacked up against God's perfection and majesty and holiness, we are God's enemies. Because God in his perfection state, his, his holiness, right, and our sinfulness, we are against everything that God is. We are God's enemies. Now, we don't like to talk about that. We don't like to say it out loud. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, we don't like to talk about sin. We don't like to talk about things like, I am an enemy of God, because we want to imagine a very docile, loving God, right, who kind of looks at our sinfulness with a, kind of a youthful exuberance, like, oh, you know, Trevor was just doing this. He was young, and as long as he comes back to church when he's married and has kids, then everything will be fine. We want to picture God that way. But scripture lays out a very strong case that we are God's enemies because of the sin in our life. And that sin actually makes us subject to God's wrath. Now, no one likes to talk about these things, but it doesn't make them any less true. That we are enemies of God and we are subject to his wrath. It's not something that packs churches, right? People don't come to hear that, not unless you're, you know, Puritans and kind of all that, and that was sort of what you did. But today's day and age, and our kind of churches that are filled with encouraging messages, 
lift me up, build me up. We don't like to deal with some of the strong realities that Scripture points to. That without Jesus Christ, we are enemies of God and we are subject to his wrath. What that means is that without Jesus, I have no hope. I'm an enemy of God and I'm subject to his wrath. In fact, Paul goes on to say that actually means a few things. It means this. It first means that you're powerless. 5.8 says, but God demonstrates his own love for in this, us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Right? Verse 6. For when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Those verses lay out three really think, three powerful things or things that we need to see. And the first is this, that when I'm an enemy of God, as an enemy of God, subject to his wrath, I am powerless on my own to do anything about it. I cannot overcome that. I cannot work my way to a better relationship with the Lord. Which is the opposite of what most of us have been raised to do culturally. If we're kind of buried in something, we work our way out of it. It's the American way. We pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. I will fight my way out of this situation. And so, if I'm an enemy of God or if I have something wrong with my life, all I need to do is work my way into something better. So God, I promise I will show up at church more. I'm gonna quit doing this. This is my last time ever, God, to do this thing. I can't believe I did it again, but I'm never doing it again. I'm not gonna do it again because I know that you don't like it, and so I'm gonna keep trying not to do it in hopes that you will love me more or bless me more. But we're powerless. No amount of doing, showing up at church, praying more, going to more Bible studies, buying more books, reading more devotionals written by people you've never heard of is going to draw you any closer to not being an enemy of God. You're powerless. Paul goes on to tell you that you're also ungodly, which is no surprise. If we're enemies of God and we have sin in our life and God is holy and majestic, we are not only powerless, but we are also ungodly. And then Paul goes on to tell us that we are sinners. Therefore, why you are still sinners. All things that we know, right? I'm an enemy of God. I'm subject to his wrath. I am powerless. I am ungodly. And I am sinful. Merry Christmas, right? Doesn't sound like much of a Christmas sermon. But that's the deal. What I'm trying to show you is that that statement, Jesus, you are the reason for my hope, is stacked because without you, I'm hopeless. I'm an enemy of God, subject to his wrath, powerless, ungodly, and sinful. That is my destiny. But things take a turn for the beautiful and for the hope-filled, right? So Paul goes on to say, but God. So in the middle of all that, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still in that state, while we were still ungodly and powerless and sinful, Christ died for you, for me. It was while we were in the middle of that state, in the middle of that enemy of God, subject to his wrath, powerless, ungodly, and sinful state, while we were still sinners in the middle of that, having done nothing on our own to earn or merit or warrant God's approval or his affection. No amount of, God, look, I'm trying. No amount of, I've given it my best effort or I quit doing this or I stopped thinking about that. But while we were still deeply enemies of God, Christ died 
for us. Things begin to take a turn for the hope-filled. Listen to this. He goes on saying, Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from his wrath? So here's what happens. In that state, two significantly powerful and amazing things happen through the death and resurrection of Jesus. One, you are justified right here and right now. That word justified means that we are made right with God, that we surrender our hearts and lives to Jesus Christ. In that exact very moment in time, God justifies you, saves you, delivers you, redeems you, reconciles you. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Reconciles you to him right now means that you have been freed from sin and death in this exact moment in time. You have been justified through faith. We have been justified through the death and resurrection of Jesus. That while we were still sinful, an enemy of God, powerless, ungodly, and sinful, right? When we believe and put our hope and trust in Jesus Christ, in that exact moment, we are justified, we are saved, we are delivered. What that means is that you have been freed from the garbage in your life, the sin, that stuff that is eating you alive that you cannot free yourself from. No matter how much you try, you can't walk away from the destructive thoughts or habits or lifestyle, from the lust or the greed or the hatred or the anger, or the bitterness or the fear, or the sadness, or the anxiety, or whatever those things are that you can't free yourself from. And the moment we give our life to Jesus, it doesn't mean those things quit haunting us, but it means we are no longer held accountable for that sin because God has redeemed us and freed us in Jesus Christ right this moment. Now, most of us will continue to go on punishing ourselves for sin that God has freed us from because we don't know how to walk away from chains that have already been broken. But the truth is we are justified and freed in that moment. That's one of the incredible things, right, about the death and resurrection of Jesus. But Paul goes on and says, there's actually a second incredible thing that happens with the death and resurrection of Jesus. We have been justified by his blood. How much more shall we be saved from his wrath through him? What that means is that there is a promise that we will be saved on the day of judgment. There is a day coming. The Bible is very explicit about that. That there is a day of judgment coming where we will stand before God. Every single one of us will stand before God and we will have to hold and be held in account for all of our actions and our thoughts and our behavior and our sin. And that day, as the Bible tells us, is a terrible day of reckoning. But for the believer, for the follower of Jesus, for the one that has put their faith and hope in Christ, that has been justified, saved, redeemed, the promise is that on that day, we are delivered and saved from God's wrath. And what Paul's saying is that you were an enemy of God and could do nothing about it, but Jesus so loved his creation that if you put your faith and hope in him, you are justified, freed, given eternal life that begins today and lasts through the terrible day of reckoning and into eternity. That not only are you free today, from the bondage that you've wrapped your life up in. But on that day when you stand before holy, magnificent, mighty, incredible God, you are not held accountable for all those things, but the blood of Jesus has delivered you from God's wrath. Now, when we talk about hope, 
at Advent or just in general, we, we often talk about hope in terms of words like unity and togetherness. And God, we, we have hope in this world. But when, as a follower of Christ, that word means something different. It means that my only hope is in Jesus. That I couldn't do anything on my own. But in my sinful state, God loved me enough to deliver me from my own nature. And then promise me eternal life in his presence and in his glory forever. But there's something really powerful that I want you to see that's not just wrapped up in those two things, but it's actually what Paul says to remind the Romans about how true this promise is. And this is why the book of Romans is so powerful, because it ties these things together so deeply and so theologically perfect um, that it it just echoes through what he writes. He says this, For if we were God's enemies, we are reconciled him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through him? Now, here's what Paul's saying. We have complete and total confidence in our eternal security. Now, if you're like me, at some point in time in your life, maybe now, maybe later, maybe earlier, you've asked yourself, Is this really true? Is it enough? I mean, I believe that God is God, and I believe that Jesus was his son. I put my faith and hope in him, and I believe that. But is it really enough? I mean, if I have to stand before God on this day of judgment, how do I know for sure that when I get there, he says, Trev, man, you were close. Almost had it. Sorry about you. How do I know? I mean, I know you tell me, but how do I know for sure? How do I know for sure that when I gave my life to Christ in the ninth grade, eighth grade, seventh grade, high school, whatever it was, and I made a whole bunch of mistakes through those time periods, even up until now, that it's enough? How can I be confident in my eternal security? Listen to what Paul says. He says this. For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? So he says this, if when we were enemies, opposites, at odds, at war with holy, majestic, mighty God, at absolute war with him as enemies, if at that point in our relationship, God loved you enough to send his son to die for you, to give you life, to reconcile you, remember, to bring back to harmony with. If God loved you enough to send his son to reconcile you to him while you were his enemy, how much more when you stand before God on that day of reckoning, having been reconciled, now being friends with God, will he complete what he has promised? Do you see what Paul's saying? That if God reconciled you while you were enemies on this earth, That when you stand before God in that day of judgment, how much more now having been reconciled, being brought back to harmony with being friends with God, how much more will God honor and finish what he has already done? You've been reconciled. You've been brought back to harmony with. You have been justified and now you stand completely free and you can rest assured that your salvation is real. If there's ever a verse in Scripture 
that points to the eternal assurance of our salvation, right? Or as Reformed folks would say, to the perseverance of the saints. The idea that once I am saved, I cannot lose my salvation. That once God has justified someone, that he has redeemed them and saved them in Christ, they cannot fall away. He has marked them and sealed them and he has reconciled them and he honors that truth and that promise as they stand before him, covered and redeemed by the blood of Jesus. What that means is that when you're saved, you're saved. Saved. When I think about hope, I don't put a lot of hope and stock in things that, of this world. Look, it's not all going to work out, right? Look around you. People are at odds with each other. Nations are at war. Genocide still happens. Slavery is abounding. Human trafficking is a huge part of our world. Hope that one day we all just decide that we're going to get along politically and kind of in a religious standpoint and hold hands and share a Coke and stretch around the world together. I can't put my hope there. Because sin and death are real. And they make us enemies of God. Where my hope is, is in the one that can do what I could never do. That while I was still powerless and ungodly and sinful, he did for me what I could never do for myself. And that justified me, saved me right now in this very moment. That I'm free from all the garbage that I've ever done or said, I'm free. That I've ever thought, that I've ever acted on. You're free from it. As a follower of Christ, you are free from it. But that promise doesn't end today. It continues with us every moment. His mercies are new every day. We arise to his new and unending and incredibly ridiculous, beautiful grace that will lead us all the way to the day where we stand before him and we are covered in the blood of Christ. And he doesn't look back and say, Treb, you really gave it your best effort, man. That's pretty good, but not good enough. He looks at my broken, sinful, disastrous life and he says, I brought you back to me through the death and resurrection of my son. When you put your faith in him, I saved you. You are mine. I've sealed you and I've claimed you. And every mistake you've made is still covered by my love poured out to the person, resurrection of Jesus Christ. In, oh, I guess it was 1563, there was a, a guy by the name of Elector Frederick III, and he was the head of uh, probably the most influential German province at the time. And there was, kind of coming on the heels of the Reformation, there was a lot of angst between German Lutherans and Reformed Christians. And they were moving out of this sort of period of kind of you know, Catholic Reformation. And they were arguing, and there was a lot of infighting on some of the things that were even going on theologically. And so Elector Frederick III said, we need to figure out a way to rally around the truth of Scripture. 
as followers of Christ. And so he basically appointed two people, two very young men. One was a 28-year-old professor at the University of Heidelberg, and the other was his 26-year-old pastor. And he asked these two guys to come together and to write a confession, um, a document that the church could hold on to and use not only as a tool in worship, but as a teaching document for their children. And what they came up with was a catechism, which is just a basic fancy word for saying a teaching document, that became really a backbone of the church for centuries. And it's called the Heidelberg Catechism, and it's written with questions and answers. And it asks a question, and then it answers it. And they're, they're designed to teach our hearts. But this is what the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism says, and I wrote it down so I could tell it to you. It says, what is your only comfort in life and death? And this is what speaks so profoundly to my heart about this statement. Jesus, you are the reason for my hope. It says this, what is your only comfort in life and death? And this is the answer, that I am not my own, but I belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. He has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a single hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but I belong heart and soul to Jesus Christ, whose precious blood covers me. Jesus, you are the reason for my hope. My prayer is that as you think about Christmas time and Advent with your family, and as you guys do things like put up trees and decorate houses and bake Christmas lists and all those things, that we would reorient our way of thinking a little bit. We begin to realize what Christ has done for us and what Advent truly means. That he is taking us, enemies of God, that deserve his wrath, that are ungodly and powerless and sinful, and he has redeemed through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And we confess our trust and belief in him justifies us right now, right in this very moment from all the garbage you've done, You've been set free. You've been forgiven. Probably time to forgive and move on. And that promise carries through to that day when we stand before God. And he has claimed you and sealed you. That you are his. And you can be confident, deeply confident in that truth. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word, that it is timeless and that it is true and that it is right And Lord, this is not necessarily a Christmas message per se. It's a message of just truth. But it does revolve around hope. Because God, I have tried to put my hope in a lot of things. I've tried to put my hope in my own ability. In fact, I continue to try to put my hope in my own ability. I continue to try and perform for you. I continue to try and perform for others. God, I continue to try and do things continue to try and please myself and pursue what I think is right 
would bring me joy or that I would find happiness in. And God, I am a complete and utter failure. I have no hope in me. You are the only reason for my hope. That while I was still powerless, you did what I couldn't do for myself. And Lord, I pray that as a church, that would be something that we cried out together. That Jesus, you are the reason for our hope. And we can't put our hope in this world. We can't put our hope in the things of this world. We can't put our hope in material things or even in our own ability. But God, we put our hope in you who can do and did what we can't do for ourselves. And we can rest assured in that eternal confidence. What is my only hope in life and death? That I belong heart and soul to Jesus Christ, my Savior. Amen. As we stand together and uh, sing this last song, closing out in worship, this last song comes partially from uh, this passage in 1 Peter.